0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing our way through the text, continuing our way through Matthew 18. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 18 to 20, but we're going to pick it up in in verse 15. While you're flipping there, um, this last week I went uh, toy shopping with my children at Toys R Us. Now, just so you know, uh, the way that we do it in our house, and, and please don't misunderstand, it is perfectly legitimate if you have children to give them chores to do, and you don't necessarily have to pay them for those chores. That's okay. In our house, we pay, we give our daughter chores to do. Some things she just has to do, like make her bed, clean her room, things like that. But there are other chores that we assign to her, specifically because we want to pay her for those chores because we want her to learn the value of hard work and and a job well done, and we also want to begin teaching her at a young age money management principles, like saving um, and tithing, and things of that nature. And so my daughter's been working hard all summer, and of course Chloe has uh, chores that she does, and Olive has chores that she does, and as you get older, you get more chores, and you get more money based on the difficulty of the chore to which you're assigned. So anyway, uh, we give them a goal. What's something you'd like to have? They flip through the little Toys R Us uh, magazine insert thing in the paper. They find something that appeals to them, and, you know, we say, okay, well, this is how much that is, and you know, this is how long it's going to take you to save up for that. And then they, they commit to working towards that goal. Now, at any given time, if we're in a store and they see candy, and they're like, oh, I want that. We say, well, uh, you got the money for it because I don't have them. Yes, I do have them. Well, but you're saving for this thing that you really want, right? And they're like, yeah, I want the candy. And so with my older daughter, she's more disciplined in terms of saving her money. But for my younger daughter, she can never really get it all together because she eats a lot of candy, and that's okay. <laughs> so we're at the toy store. And uh, we're, because Chloe has hit that magic number. You know, she's been saving for $30, and this includes a tithe. We require that they, that they give 10% to the Lord, put it in the offering plate, and all these sorts of things. But she finally, in her bank, she hits that number. She's got the amount that she needs for this uh, Lego Friends set that she's been wanting. So we're going to Toys R Us. And I told them, in the car, we had a moment of prayer. I said, you will see strange and wonderful things when we go into this store. And I want you to know that your heart will be tempted and you simply don't have enough money, okay? So let's stick with the plan. We're here for something, let's get what we came for. We walk in the store, immediately out front, they have that $2,000 battery operated Hot Wheels car that you can jump in and turn it on and drive it off like it's a real car. And she's like, I want that. And it's like, (laughs) okay, we just had this conversation. How many zeros come after the two here? Okay, that's 2,000, which is greater, 2,000 or 30? Okay, you don't have enough money, so we can't, we can't swing it. Anyway, we go, we get the toy, the toy set, and we're, we're leaving, and, and Olive has a dollar, and uh, we're in the checkout line, and uh, of course, she's saved up a dollar over the last week's worth of chores, and she's like, there's a candy, I want the candy, and it's like 75 cents, and after taxes, it'll come to five, and I'm, I'm really trying to teach my children, they got to account for the taxes, you know, you, gotta, you always got to remember to add up the taxes, and so I'm like, Olive, I love you, dear, I want you so badly to be able to buy that candy bar. But, you know, it, you don't have enough money. You only have a dollar. It's going to cost at least a dollar five. It's going to hit about probably dollar three. They don't take pennies anymore. They're going to round it up now. To which my oldest one says, why do they round it up on the taxes? That is so unfair. They should round it down. <laughs> to which I say, amen. I agree with you. I don't know why they do that. <laughs> we check out. And I said to Olive, because she's heartbroken. Oh, I don't have enough money. I said, Olive, if you want, you should ask your father. Daddy, will you loan me the nickel that I need to buy the candy bar? If you ask me really nicely to loan you some money, I will loan you the nickel you need, and we'll, we'll get you the candy bar, and you can make it up to me this next week's chores. So she says, okay. Daddy, will you please loan me $5? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, man, you're growing up too fast. I you're only four, child, calm down, like you shouldn't be this quick with your, with the manipulation games, but I loaned her, I loaned her a nickel, and uh, she, uh, she puts the candy bar up there, and uh, I had miscalculated, so she rings it up, the, the cashier rings it up, and it's actually dollar ten. so she needs another nickel. And so, and, and I'm trying to teach them to be courageous. You know, you're there to talk to them. They're going to tell you what you need, and you, you need to listen to the adults and think about what they're saying, and if they're asking for more money, you need to, you need to be able to have that conversation with these adults, right? I'm right here behind you. I'm not going to let anybody grab you or steal you or anything. I'm right here, but you have to, you have to be mature enough to, to talk to these adults. So the lady says, I'm so sorry, honey. And she's four, and she can barely even see over, the, like, her eyes are, like, just looking over the... The counter there, and this lady is being really kind and really gracious. She says, "I am so sorry, honey. Um, you have a dollar five. You need a dollar ten. And Olive turns around and she says, "Daddy, may I please borrow five more dollars?" <laughs> she knows the difference between a nickel and a dollar. She just is looking to to milk it, right? At any rate, we get out into the car, and uh, we're driving home. We're going from you know Toys R Us back to where I live. And the whole drive home, all the way across the bridge, the whole distance, uh, they both have their receipts for their respective items. And, you know, my younger one is just chow- chowing down on her, uh, on her um, uh, sucker, lollipop. And my older one is sitting there going over the fine print, you know, and, and she's reading this thing. And she's like, I do not understand why we have to pay tax. Why do we have to pay tax? And she's really upset over this. And I said, well, honey, you see, um, the government does a lot of good things to, you know, make it possible for you to, to buy this, this toy, you know? And actually, I stopped for a minute, I started to think, I was like, well, I mean, let's think about this, like, you did all of your labor for your money uh, in my house, you didn't actually utilize any kind of streets or, you know, you didn't really rely on any kind of public services really to, to get this money, so I don't know, it kind of begs the question. We're having this libertarian type of conversation where it's like, what did the government really do here? And then we started to, to debate: Do we really should we accept taxes on children's toys? And um, and we just had this interesting discussion. But at the end of the day, yes, we should. And I explained this to her. I said, Listen, Dad had to drive you to the toy store. That road had to be paved. The toy store draws power, electricity, from somewhere to turn the lights on so you can see the toys in the toy store. And somebody had to get on a boat and go over to China to get this plastic stuff and bring it back here. And we had to negotiate a fair import-export kind of trade negotiation with those guys. Now, most of this is just flying over Chloe's head like, what? The other day, I said, here's the deal, Chloe. You can't buy and sell or trade or barter in a society without exchanging and sharing in some way in the thing that makes that society possible. If you want to live in this world, you have to be a part of this world and you have to have dealings in this world and you are, to a certain extent, responsible for, to your fellow man in order to enable those things to happen. It was a fitting introductory civics lesson to a 6-year-old daughter. Jesus here in Matthew 18 is giving us an introductory church lesson for Christians. The question is posed by the disciples to Jesus in Matthew 18:1 Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We're talking about a civilization governed by God. And the question is, who becomes the greatest member in that place? And Jesus begins to unpack it. And this, from start to finish, is comprehensive. I want to show you this. He starts off... In verse three, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like the child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, a person who abandons all of their own preconceived ideas and all of their preconceived notions and trusts what God says and takes God at his word. That's how you get in. That's how you become a member, and that's how you become a greatest member in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in verses 5, basically all the way down to verses 9, and he talks about the need to address sin in your life that is rebellion, that is violence against other people through a selfish nature. You have to be utterly ruthless in the way that you handle that because Jesus introduces us to the concept here, that as we do it to any of the least members of the kingdom of heaven, we do it to Jesus. The basis for civilian citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is union with Christ. So he begins to introduce that. He says, with regards to sin, whether you're sinning against yourself or you're sinning against other people, you need to be utterly ruthless in not doing that. He said, it'd be better for you to chop your hand off, chop your foot off, cut your eye out, whatever the case may be, rather than allowing those things to lead you into sin. In the next section, in verses 10 to 14, he talks about going after the one that got away, so to speak. You have 90, you have 100 sheep, you have one that leaves. Would you not leave the 99 and go and chase down the one? To which Jesus is saying, greatness in the kingdom of heaven consists of people who are relentless in chasing after their brothers and sisters. So ruthlessness with regards to dealing with our own sin Relentlessness with regards to pursuing our brothers and sisters in love. And lastly, in this last section, reverence for the church, which is the basis and the foundation for the coming kingdom of heaven. Last week, we looked at the fact, with regards to sin, that if people in the church sin against each other, if there is a person who, in a blatant and unrepentant manner, sins against another person in this church the church is called to address that if it is not abandoned if it is not forsaken these are and we saw this last week these are imperatives number 1 if your brother sins against you you will go and talk to him it's not a suggestion it's an imperative the verb is in the imperative tense jesus isn't saying hey this is a good piece of advice he's saying as your king this is what you will do if your brother sins against you you will go to him you will attempt to persuade him of his sin Number one, you're going to go to him. Number two, you will persuade him of his sin. If he listens to you, all well and good, end of discussion. Number three, if he doesn't listen to you, you will take at least one or two other witnesses with you in order to establish what you're talking about on the testimony of eyewitnesses. There has to be a measure of evidence that will speak to this situation, and you have to have that. Number four, if he doesn't listen to those one or two other witnesses, you will tell it to the church. And the implication, though it's not explicit in the text, the church is then called to go and talk to this man, to try and intercede, to try and turn him away from his sin. And if he doesn't listen to the church, Jesus is emphatic, it's in the imperative, you will now treat him like a tax collector or a Gentile, which given the Jewish prejudices of this particular point in time, what he is saying is he needs to be an outcast. He needs to be an outsider. He needs to be removed, put out of the church, and not regarded as a brother anymore. Jesus is saying basically there are three groups of people. There's the world, there are Christians, and there's this group in the middle which claim to be Christian but still act like the world. And what Jesus is saying here in this text, and we're going to get to verses 18 and 20 here in just a second, what he is saying here is you can live in the world. You can have dealings with the world. And you live in the church. You are a part of the church. Of course, you're going to have spiritual interaction with the church and you're going to have worldly dealings with the world. But there's one group of people that we're not to permit in the church. And that's people who are really of the world, but call themselves Christians. And as far as Jesus is concerned, in verses 15 to 17, out of love, we are called as a church to take those people who claim to be Christians, but are truly of the world and we're to push them back out into the world. That's what he's calling us to do. Now in our day and age, if you do this you're going to get threatened with a lawsuit. Now how do you know that? Because we've been threatened with lawsuits here at the bridge as we have strived to honor this passage. Anytime you have somebody who's living in unrepentant sin. There is always anger. There is always hatred. And any time you try to correct that, they're always going to respond the way that the world would respond. How dare you suggest that there's a standard of holiness to which I might attain to? Jesus never stops and says, hey, listen, I know that this isn't going to be a very popular practice. I I know that nobody's going to want to do this. He never stops to address those objections. He just says, this is what you're going to do. Do this, do this, do this. And a lot of scholars look at this and they say, well, you know, he's omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing suddenly occurs to Jesus. It would have been so good if Jesus had just hit the pause button and said, listen, I know that this is going to happen. Like, just, it's okay. Be reassured. It would be great if Jesus would just give us some encouragement. My argument is, he gives you all the encouragement you need to practice church discipline in verses 18 to 20. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven. As he began the chapter, it starts off with a humble recognition that whatever you do to the least of these brothers of mine, you do it to me. Jesus is one with his church. He is one with every individual believer in his church. And he's going to conclude this section now by returning to that and saying, if two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm with them. Look at what he says, verse 18. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall... Now, this is a past tense participle. Grammar grammar is important. Syntax, Syntax is important. When you have a past tense participle, the action of that participle is always contingent on the time of action with regards to the main verb. You're like, well, what are you saying? Okay, let me just paraphrase it for you. This is what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, truly I say to you, whatever you have bound, okay, it's in the past tense, which means that the participle which is coming has to also be in past tense, but because it's a past tense participle, it has to be in a tense that precedes the main verb. So Jesus is saying, whatever you have bound shall have already been bound in heaven. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this. If you're, if you're using the ESV Thinline Edition 2007 print, You don't have to flip the page. If you're using some other Bible, go back a page to Matthew chapter 16 and look specifically at verse 18. Jesus makes a statement to Peter. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you let loose on earth shall have been let loose in heaven. In Matthew 16, Peter is confessing faith in Christ, and Jesus is saying, congratulations, you didn't come to this on your own, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And immediately he starts to talk about this thing called the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does a key do? A key opens, uh, it, it locks or it unlocks a door. It opens or it shuts a door. That's what a key does. And Jesus' statement to Peter is, based on your profession, I'm going to give you, and the you there is plural, Texas idiom, he says, I'm going to give y'all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever y'all bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven heaven, and whatever y'all let loose on earth will have already been let loose in heaven. Now there he's talking about entrance into the kingdom of heaven, confessing faith in Jesus, saying that Jesus is Lord. Here he's talking about the opposite, though he begins with the same language. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, and it's the exact same grammatically, exact same, whatever you have bound on earth shall have already been bound in heaven, And whatever you let loose on earth shall have already been let loose in heaven. Now, that's critical to what follows in verse 19. You'll notice verse 19 starts off with the word again. It's a conjunctive particle, meaning what he's going to say in verse 19 is in some way a repetition of what he has just said in verse 18. Now, what he says in verse 19 is a little different. But because of the way he starts the verse, it is intended to be an elaboration, an explanation, a compliment to what he has just finished saying. Well, what is he just finished saying? Whatever you bind or loose on earth shall have already been bound or let loose in heaven. Truly, and he makes a statement, or he says, again, I say to you, if two of you, now it's two of you. It's not one, it's two of you. If two of you agree on earth... About anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Oh, if there was ever a verse that was more taken out of context and misapplied than this one, I would like to know what it is. Um, I cannot tell you how many prayer meetings I've been to in which I you know, have a couple of people saying, you know, uh, for, for example, this is total hypothetical. We need, you know, $100,000 to make up our church budget this year, and so... Do you agree? Okay, well, you know what? The two of us agree. We agree. God has to do it for us. Matthew 18, 19. The problem is that that's not what God is saying here. In context, he's elaborating on the ministry of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, since verse 19 is a repetition of verse 18, they're complementary to each other, and they constrain each other. In other words, Whatever verse 19 is saying, it cannot go beyond the bounds or the limits of what verse 18 has just said. In verse 18, he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Meaning, we're talking about some form of a spiritual exchange that is recognized by God in heaven, which we are called to recognize here on earth. Given the larger context of verses 15 to 20, specifically unrepentant sin and an unrepentant brother, someone who's claiming to be a brother in the Lord, what Jesus is saying here is that we have a responsibility, we in this room have an obligation to recognize and identify true brothers from false brothers, not that we save people. Salvation is a transaction which happens in heaven but we are called to recognize it and to include or, as the case may be, exclude people from the church on the basis of whether or not they've been saved by Christ. It makes a statement here in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth. What does that word mean? I want you to stick your thumb here and flip a page back to Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus is going to tell a parable. I'm just going to show you this so you can understand it. In Matthew 13, verse 24, he tells this parable of the weeds. It's not my purpose to get into the meaning of the parable of the weeds, although I would argue there is a correlation between what Jesus is saying in this parable and what he is teaching in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. But the point is this. He makes the statement. They're like, well, what do we do? they got these weeds sown in with the good wheat. You know, should we, you know, what should we do with this wheat? And he gives them instructions. And he makes a statement in verse 29, No, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, now look at this word, and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the word there, bind into bundles, Jesus is talking about in that parable making hay bales, essentially. You get the weeds together and you get the wheat together, you bind the weeds and you bind the hay, the, the straw, the good stuff, you bind that. You keep them separate, you burn the weeds, and you keep the hay. The word there, bind, is talking about a cord or a strand or a rope. Modern-day technology, will use a a baling wire. It's talking about taking all of this of a particular kind, be it hay or weeds, as the case may be, and gathering it together and binding it together. Now, that's the essence of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 18. His statement is, we are called to bind true Christians together in the church, in the house of God, and we are called to not bind, to let loose those individuals who claim to be a Christian and are really not, but to push them out. That's what we are called to do. Verse 19 is a reflection of verse 18, and he makes this statement, whatever, again, I say to you, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, if verse 19 is a restatement of verse 18, and verse 18 says, let's be busy with the business of binding and loosing, verse 19 is supposed to be restating that or complementing that in some way. But it doesn't seem immediately obviously what Jesus is saying there. He's whatever you ask, it will be done. When we let a person loose, when we push a person out of the church, because we suspect They are not Christians. What are we really doing? And this is the pushback. If they are not Christians, and we recognize that, would it not be in their best interests to continue with the church, to continue to be influenced by the church? so they could become Christians. Now, if you have an unbeliever walk in on a Sunday morning and they don't make any pretense about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're, they're realistic in their self-assessment, they know they're lost, by all means, let them continue. Let them come. Let them hear the preaching of the Word of God. But if a person thinks that they're saved, but they are living in a life that clearly shows that they're not saved, the teaching of Scripture is actually that that is quite harmful to allow them to continue on with the church as though there's no change, there's no difference between them and us. Jesus makes this statement here, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What is it we're asking for? Ultimately, we're asking for their salvation. There is a business that takes place in church discipline. That is part us in this room, and part Father in heaven. I want you to flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, at the church in Corinth, there is a gentleman there who has entered into an inappropriate sexual relationship with his stepmother, I don't know, the text is not clear whether his dad is dead or not. Not that that really matters. In Deuteronomy, it is emphatic you will not have a sexual relationship with your stepmom because she is one with your father. And the explanation is if you have a sexual relationship with your stepmother, you are uncovering the nakedness of your father, and that is an abomination in the Lord's eyes. There used to be a day and age which I could just say, hey, he was sleeping with his stepmom, and everybody would be like, oh, that's gross. And for the most part, we're still like that today, but more and more with the sexual revolution under- taking place, I, don't, I can't automatically assume that we'll all just agree that that's wrong. But the scriptures are clear. It's wrong. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, whoa, I'm in 2 Corinthians. It's like, that doesn't look quite right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes a statement. It is reported to me that there's actually a brother there among you who is involved in this type of a relationship. And he says, you guys are arrogant, verse 2. Now, notice what he says here. Shouldn't you be mourning? Shouldn't you be crying? From there, he goes on, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then he makes this statement. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if physically present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is the goal of church discipline? Verse 5 makes it clear when we push a man out of the church, church discipline, also known as excommunication, we are handing him back over to the world, which is Satan's domain. It's where he lives. It's where he has sway and influence. And Paul's statement is, when my spirit is there with you, and Jesus is among you, and you are gathered together, you need to hand this person over to Satan so Satan can destroy him in the hopes that his soul or his spirit may be saved. The goal of kicking a person out of the church because of unrepentant sin is not to say to that person, I'm better than you, I'm cool, you're you're not. It's not to exalt ourselves. It's a kindness. It's a mercy. It's an act of grace. We have to help them to see where they are so that by God's grace, they can see where they need to be. That's the point of church discipline. Discipline. He goes on and he says, your boasting's not good. Do you not know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he talks about the fact that we're called to be pure within the church. And from there, he writes in verse nine, I wrote to you in my, he had written a previous letter, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That is, if anyone calls themselves a Christian. You don't hang out with those people. You don't associate with those people if they continue to be guilty of unrepentant, ongoing sins such as, and he lists sexual morality, greed. Uh, He's an idolater. He's worshiping God, but he's also worshiping other things. Or a reviler. Somebody who engages in slander or gossip makes the list here. That's what that word means. People are like, oh, we're not going to do church discipline over something like slander or gossip. Paul includes it in the list. Someone's a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. says, don't eat with those people. Paul has elaborated exactly on what Jesus has said in Matthew 18. The question is, why should we do this? Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among you. Paul says the same thing here in 1 Corinthians. Look back at verse 3. Though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled in the name of Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of Lord Jesus, you are to conduct church discipline. Now, what's interesting is they had this guy in their church living in unrepentant sin. And their response to that was awesome, this is cool because we have grace. God forgives. Therefore, it doesn't matter how we live, because God will just forgive us. And, and this is pretty sick, but hey, what a demonstration of God's grace. And Paul's statement is, you should be crying There should be tears streaming down your face when he says, ought you not rather to mourn? The Greek word for mourn there means that we ought to be crying our eyes out over the fact that somebody that we consider a brother in the Lord Jesus would go on living in this kind of behavior. The world today says, who are we to judge? And Paul's statement is, you are called to judge because of the one who indwells you. His statement is, as if present, my spirit is there with you. Well, what's he saying? Is Paul there in any meaningful sense? He's not there physically. He's not like telepathic. He's not transporting himself mentally in some weird way. When he says spirit, what's the spirit that he's talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. His spirit that indwells him, the spirit that comes from the Lord, the Holy Spirit, that's the one who's grieved. When any of us sin against any other of us, and I looked at, we've looked at this previously, We're sinning against Jesus. That's how Jesus starts Matthew 18. We looked at two different passages to prove that. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a property. It doesn't tell the exact amount. Let's just say it's $10,000. They sell a piece of property for $10,000. They give $5,000 to the church, and they make this big show. Hey, this is what we got for the property. This is the whole amount of the money, and we are so holy. We're giving this to the church. And Peter's rebuking is, you didn't lie to men. But they're talking to men. Aren't they? Yes. Men who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Peter's rebuke is, you didn't lie to men. You lied to God. And then they dropped it. Acts chapter 9. Paul killing men, Christian men. Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus, and he says to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, based on all the historical records, we, we don't know in any way, shape, or form that Paul was there with the Sanhedrin that pronounced judgment on Jesus the night he was betrayed to be crucified. The text is perfectly clear. Paul was killing Christians, but as far as the Lord Jesus was concerned, he was killing him. Now let me bring this back to you today. I could go on and I could quote you 10 other verses. Romans twelve five, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, John 1, 1 John 3. I mean, I could, we could do a whole survey of the New Testament, but here's the deal. When we become Christians, we fundamentally change. We are totally different from that moment on in that the Lord sends his spirit to indwell us In any offense we take against each other, it is an offense against God, but it is an offense against each other, and doubly so in the sense that it's an offense against God who lives in us. We're not just hurting each other. We're hurting him, the king. The Holy Spirit, when that spirit indwells us, as he continues to sanctify us and edify us, we become more and more like Jesus. In Ephesians 4, Paul makes a statement, don't lie to each other anymore, but speak the truth, each of you, to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And he goes on to say this, let us not grieve the Holy Spirit. If you lie to me, am I going to know about it? No, because you've lied to me. I, I don't know whether you're lying to me. I'm not smart. I'm not clever. To f- I mean, I might figure it out in time. But whether I ever discover it or not, God knows instantly. Whether I ever feel hurt or pain as a result of your action or not, God is grieved. And when we allow people who claim to be Christian live in such a way that it is clear that the Spirit is not working in their life. Number one, we are not helping that person. It is bad for them to allow that to go on. But number two, and much more significantly, we are grieving the Holy Spirit who lives among us. Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. And if we allow people to hurt Jesus' people, we're allowing people to hurt Jesus. And if we really understand what he did for us on the cross, there's no way that we could be allowing that to happen. A lot of scholars look at this passage and say, well, why didn't Jesus sort of deal with some of the objections like why this might be difficult or why we might be uncomfortable with this? Because his thought was that you would be so consumed with the truth of your oneness, your union with Jesus, that you would uphold that spiritual connection you have with him through each other that there would be no need to address the objections, that there would be no need to sit down and say, well, now this is why it's going to be difficult, and blah, blah, blah. There's no need for that. Because if we are captured by the beauty of the fact that through the indwelling Spirit of God, we belong to each other, we are one of another, any time any part of any one body is injured, the whole body feels it. If you're nailing a nail, which I was yesterday, incidentally, with a hammer, and you smack your thumb... Oh, my thumb hurts. Oh, poor thumb. Is that really how it is? Or are you tensed all over? Are you cringing all over? Oh, my thumb. Is that not in a very real way a part of you and sharing in the totality of all that is your life? Absolutely it is, which means the same thing happens in the church. If one brother in the church sins against another brother in the church, and it's obvious, and it's public, and it's hurt, You should hurt. And that's not to say that there's no hope for that, brother. We addressed all of this last week. We go to them. We confront them. But if it doesn't stop, you don't just keep beating your thumb to death. We can't allow people in the church to keep beating each other to death either. I'm going to apply this in two ways, and then we're going to be done. The objection is raised. Okay, um, so we do this. We kick a guy out of our church. Really, like, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. He's just going to go down the street to the next church. Yes, he will. And your response to me then in that moment is, well, see, so what difference does it make? Like, we can't really actually kick him out of the church. He'll just go to some other church. We're not actually accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish. Wrong. We are. It is true that he might just go to some other church. That is absolutely true. And we've seen it happen. We've done church discipline. They just roll on down the church. And you'll find lots of churches in the town. Did that tall, skinny, fundamentalist preacher treat you rough? Oh, you poor thing. Come in here. We'll, we'll take you in. You bring your tithe dollars in. You just come join our church. We love to have you. I guarantee you that happens. I promise you it happens. Now, just because there are many churches who do that, does not mean that every church does that. I was blessed to be part of a church one time in uh, College Bryan Station, uh, Central Baptist Church pastored by a wonderful godly man, Chris Osborne. There was another church in town. This happened, uh, it was about 2004, I think. And uh, this I won't get into all the details. There was a thing that happened. It actually went to the courts. This church removed this man. He was engaging in unrepentant sin. It wasn't a criminal offense, but it was just shy of being a criminal offense. He almost could have gone to jail for doing what he was doing, and he refused to stop. Now, they said, we're not going to have this kind of behavior in the church. They kicked him out. Church discipline. He filed a lawsuit, which is what you do. So we should just expect it. He went to the courts. He said, how dare they? They don't know no right to kick me out of a worship service. I don't want my rights. I want to have freedom of religion, blah, 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 blah. Took it to the courts. They filed a lawsuit. Now, the judge actually ruled in terms of freedom of religion in favor of the church. And in the affidavit, in the, in the court case that was proceeding in college, Bryant College Station at the time, he said, well, I should deserve to go to some other church in town, and I want to go to Central Baptist Church, which... Incidentally, was where Shanti and I attended. So it caught my attention, because it's all this right up in the paper. We're reading this stuff We're like, whoa, whoa. This is my first ever exposure to church discipline. Now, Chris Osborne, wonderful man of God, my first mentor in the faith, the church had money so they could afford to do things like this. He hired a lawyer, and he filed what is known as an amicus briefing, friend of the court type of thing. And he stipulated, under the freedom of religion... We reserve the right to practice our freedom of religion, same as Grace Bible Church, who kicked this man out, to not receive this man into membership as an act of respect and solidarity with that church honoring their practice of church discipline. And many of the other churches in town signed that same amicus briefing, signed on to that affidavit. You sit there and say, okay, so we kick him out of church, won't he just go to some other church? Undoubtedly, he will try. But don't assume that every church in town is just going to ignore what has taken place and accept them. There are churches that have said, no, we will honor what the Lord is trying to do in this man's life through the ministry of that other church. Now, let's just say it doesn't happen that way. Number two, let's just say he goes over to another church. And they welcome him in. Oh, was that kid really mean and rough on you? Did he preach a hard sermon? Okay, you come on with us. They don't stop to ask the questions about what, what's going on here. Did you, oh, you come on in. Jesus' statement here is, if two of you agree on anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. When they leave here, there's no telling what church may or may not take them in. But the Lord knows the truth of what has happened. And Paul's statement is, you will hand this man over to Satan. And the question becomes, what does that mean? I have read the Bible cover to cover looking for some answer to this question. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? The only example I can come up with is the book of Job in which Satan said, the only reason Job worships you is because you put a hedge of protection around him, you won't let anything touch him. If you give him into my hand, he won't worship you anymore. And what was the end result of that conversation? Now, please bear in mind, Job was not under church discipline. Church didn't even exist in this day and age, but this is the only instance we have in all of Scripture in which it is clear-cut, a man was handed over to Satan by God. His family perished. His wealth gone physical well-being, his health, taken from him. So much so that his best friends came to him and said dude repent and he's like I don't think I did anything wrong. His wife says to him just curse God and die. When we remove a person from the church they can go to any other church in town And it's true, there are many churches in town who will accept them into their fellowship. Your argument is, so what good does it really do? That question depends on how seriously you take the Bible. A number of years ago, we did church discipline. A man was essentially abandoning his family. I won't get into all the particulars of it. We removed him as an act of church discipline. He went to another church. That church welcomed him, arms wide open. We stopped having interaction to do with him. Sent a letter, said, we'd like for you to come back. We'd like for you to stop doing these things, you know, all that sort of stuff. It bounced from church to church. It was six months here, seven months there. I kept having these violent interactions with pastors in town. I went to the pastoral ministerial meeting thing Pastor comes up to me, did you guys? Yeah, we did it, it's true. And of course, in those first months, it was kind of like, oh, Clay Camp, he's kind of hardcore, I don't know about this guy. You know, they're looking at you sideways. In time, I've had three pastors come to me since then from three different churches in which this individual has bounced around. They said to him, we are grateful that Bridge Baptist Church did what it did. Because it's clear that this man is living in unrepentant sin and the Lord is doing drastic things in his life to try and get his attention. What started off as a besmirching of my character of the character of this church has turned over time by the province of the Lord into a humble recognition that we truly love people and we truly care about them we will have those tough conversations. Now to lighten it up a bit as we close out our time this morning, anybody in here an NBA fan? Basketball? (laughs) Well, you know what the sport is, right? Am I... (laughs) A number of years ago, there's this guy named Allen Iverson. He's, a, he's an NBA basketball player, professional athlete, plays in the NBA. He doesn't play anymore. He's since retired. But 2004, he's a member of the 76ers. 76ers, national championship of the NBA. It's like, you know, ooh, it's like the, the, you know, championship of the world in the NBA, okay? So they're going to the championship. I forget now who they're playing. 76ers went all the way to Game 7, OK? So just so you know, you're a hockey fan, right? Like they do it in series. Baseball, same way, OK? So you do it in series, right? And they went all the way to Game 7. Game 7 is the, the tying, the, you know, the, the deciding game. Who's going to win the championship of the world, NBA? Allen Iverson. And this guy is a unique individual. Uh, they come down. The coach, you know, it's like five seconds on the clock. They call a timeout. OK, we got five seconds. We're going to pass the ball in. We're going to run this play, blah, blah, blah. He draws all this up on a map. Okay. Go back into the game, you know, they blow a little whistle, time starts, pass, boom, boom, they run this play, come down court, Allen Iverson doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He totally, he totally messes it up, and they miss the game-winning shot, and they lose the game. In the press conference afterwards, and you just go home today and you YouTube this, okay, there's a YouTube video of this, it's hilarious. They say to him, (laughs) they say to his coach, What happened? He says, Alan Iverson, you know, we drew it up on the board, what we were supposed to do, the play we were running, but he didn't run the right play. Not that he was running it the wrong way, but he just didn't have familiarity with the other members on his team. Because, Because he didn't have familiarity with the other members on his team, he wasn't totally in sync with their body language and how they were moving on the court, and that caused him to be a little bit off in his timing on the play. And the reason, and he dropped this bombshell, the reason Allen Iverson didn't know what was going on with his teammates on the court, in the game, its because he never came to practice. You see, he's the greatest player on that team. I mean, he's fast, he can shoot, he can play defense, he is quick, and I'm talking quick as a rabbit. Nobody can cover this guy. He's all over the place, you know? And, and his mentality was, you know, I'm awesome, I don't have to be a part of my team. I don't have to worry about what my other teammates are doing. I'll just skip practice, and I'll just play in the game." So they asked Allen Iverson in the press conference, post-game press conference, said, Allen, why don't you go to practice? And you just YouTube this. <laughs> it's one of my favorite videos of all time. He spends, I guarantee you, three, at least three full minutes saying, practice, man. Practice? You want to ask me about practice? I mean, we're talking about practice, man. Practice, man. You want to ask me about practice? I mean, man, we're not even talking about the game, man. We're talking about practice. Practice, man. I guarantee you, it goes on like that for three minutes. Exactly. Like, I am word for word. That's what's going on there. And by the end of it, the journalists are laughing. They're like, like, okay, So yeah, we're asking you about practice. Uh, So did you go? He says, no, I didn't go to practice. <laughs> that was just his ploy to kind of like not so subtly dodge the question, I guess. I don't know, but they traded him the next year to the Pistons. He's good. They can play. They get all the way to the first round of the playoffs. First series was difficult. Goes to game seven. You've heard the saying. Those who forget the past are doomed to repeat, to repeat it. Game seven. Five seconds left in the game. Timeout. i drawing this thing up on the clipboard here. This is what I want you guys to do. Alan Iverson's on his own page, doing his own thing. I interviewed the other players. What happened? Alan Iverson isn't with us, he isn't with us. He doesn't come to practice. They call Al Riverson in. Did you go to practice? And he just starts laughing. He says, practice, man. And, and the, the whole media starts laughing, you know. Like, he says, you're right, I didn't go to practice. See, I knew something was true in my, I knew something was true. And I learned this lesson from last year. See, they went all the way to the finals and they got bounced in the first round the next year. And he got traded away from his team because of this. He said, I learned that you have to go to practice. But even though I knew that was true, I didn't live that out in my life. And the consequences were, for him, he could have been a Hall of Fame player, but in order to do that, you've got to stay with a team for a period of time, develop some sort of chemistry or rapport, and he just couldn't do it. So now he is known as the Hall of Famer that never was. Because he didn't go to practice. Now, I close with this this morning because I want you guys to understand. All of life is practice. A practice of an appreciation and demonstration of God's glory. And people, the world over, want to claim that glory. But they don't want to live the Christian life. They don't want practice. Alan Iverson gets booted from the team because ultimately he just hurts the team. We here at Bridge Baptist Church—that's what we're called to do too. To not allow non-Christians to hurt what God is trying to do in here, week after week, month after month, year after year. Let's bow for a word of prayer.